Good morning, church. Today's, today's scripture is Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. I'm reading from the Net Bible. Please listen as I read the word of the Lord. From the day that I was appointed governor in the land of Judah, that is, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years in all, neither I nor my relatives ate the food allotted to the governor. But the former governors who preceded me had burdened the people and had taken food and wine from them, in addition to 40 shekels of silver. Their associates were also domineering over the people. But I did not behave in this way due to my fear of God. I gave myself to the work on this wall without even purchasing a field. All my associates were gathered there for the work. There were 150 Jews and officials who dined with me routinely, in addition to those who came to us from the nations all around us. Every day, one ox, six select sheep, and some birds were prepared for me, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Despite all this, I did not require the food allotted to the governor, for the work was demanding on this people. Please remember me for good, O oh my God, for all that I have done for this people. This has been the reading of God's word. Let's go to prayer. Father, we come to you and we thank you. Indeed, you are our great God. You are the Father who reigns supreme. And Lord, we thank you that in a world where things seem to be spiraling out of control, you are in charge of all. You have written the book and you know the end and we rejoice in that. Fathers, we come to the book of Nehemiah in this passage. We just ask for your guidance. Thank you for your precious word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, many thanks to Pastor Michael for preaching the last two weeks. He did a fine job. Unfortunately, I don't have that beautiful accent. Yes, I know. There you go. So don't clap too much. No, <laughs> I love it. No, Michael did a great job, and unfortunately, I don't have that accent, so that's disappointing. And then Heather came up, and that out South African accent, I just love it. So now you're stuck with this Hoosier uh, drawl, and, and that's where we are. Well, for you dads out there, how do you wish to be remembered as a father? Tony Dungy, remember him, the coach of the Indianapolis Colts for many years, former American football safety he, he said three things for how he wanted to be remembered as a father. Someone who was there for his kids, someone who cared for his kids, and someone who did everything to help them out. Well, we could ask that of the men again. How do you wish to be remembered? But we could ask it on a, on a greater scale, just for men and women on a different level, and that's how do you wish the Lord to remember you? Because that is what Nehemiah prays. At the end of chapter five, he, he goes to the Lord and says, remember me. Uh, those are tall order, and we're gonna get to that in a minute. But you know, here we've seen chapter five, Michael laid it out last week. 
the internal strife is starting to boil over as Nehemiah is faced with several problems. One, there's a, a famine going on, a drought, and so people are being taken advantage of, and there's that that's happening. The, the wall needs to be built, and, and things are in disarray. And let me just remind you where we are. If you've just joined us, we're moving through the book of Nehemiah. Give you a little bit of the timeline. Again, Nehemiah was a cupbearer at the Persian courts back in Susa, which is modern-day Iran, when he heard about the state of Jerusalem and the walls. And so he sought to return to rebuild those. And we looked at that in chapter 1, and he returns. And this is around 445 B.C., and we, we note that the walls that he will rebuild in 52 days with the Israelites, which was an amazing feat. Here's an artist rendering of what that looked like, the time of Nehemiah. And so this is the scene that we're at. And, and the, the walls have been built, and the text tells us, look at verse 14. It said, from the day that I was appointed governor in the land of Judah, this is a region where he's appointed. In fact, if we look at this map, we see this is Yehud, this is a, a province of the Persian Empire. He was the governor of this region, he tells us it's for 12 years. 12 long years in many ways, as we're going to see as we move through this. This is his first term. Nehemiah will return back to Susa, and then Nehemiah will come back as governor. And so this is the scene that is set. The text tells us that, that from the day I was appointed governor in the land of Judah. Again, he gives us the marker so we know when this time frame was occurring. King Artaxerxes, we have reliefs of this Persian king. There's coins that he minted. So um, further evidence of the historicity of the account. This is not a fable. This is not a made-up story. Nehemiah was uh, someone God placed at the right time at the right place. But Nehemiah was willing to serve and to go. And we're going to see that as we move through this. The first part of chapter 5, as we looked at last week, are what the nobles are doing wrong, how they're abusing the local yokels. Uh, they're, they're taxing them heavy. They're taking their food. The poor cannot afford that. So they're selling, some of them are selling their children into slavery. They sell the, the condo. You know, it's all gone. And it, things are not well. And what Nehemiah does in the latter part of chapter 5 is to show how they are to handle addressing one another, how they are to live as governors. And if you're following along in your notes, they're there in the bulletin. If you're watching online, they're also there available to you. But this section is bookended by a statement that we see in verse, the end of verse 14. Notice what the text says. Neither I nor my relatives, and we know he has relatives, that was mentioned in chapter 1, ate the food allotted to the governor. And again, it will be repeated there in verse 18. He said, we didn't take anything from anyone. Unlike the nobles who really had no right in the early part of chapter 5 to take food, etc., Nehemiah has a right. And he said, I waived that right. And notice what he says about the previous governors of this region. Notice what he says in verse 15. The former governors who preceded me had burdened the people, had taken food and wine, and they took 40 shekels of silver. So three things overarching is that they burdened the people. It's interesting that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, 
the Greek term that is used there is the same term used of the Egyptians and how they handled the Israelites. Exodus chapter 1. In other words, they put an undue pressure, and we saw that in the early part of chapter 5, didn't we? That, that they would force their own fellow countrymen to sell their children into slavery or into prostitution is a pretty horrific scene. And so, yes, it's at that level. And he said, you took, they took their food and their drink. Again, this is the problem in the earlier part of chapter 5. People are starving. And you're taking what little morsels they have. And then they taxed them with 40 shekels of silver. Now, it's difficult to assess. In fact, one scholar writes, while modern equivalents of such figures are rarely meaningful, the very recording of the exact figure suggests that the reader is intended to be impressed by its size. We know that the province of Judah minted coins during the time of Nehemiah. The largest denomination was a quarter of a shekel. <laughs> a quarter. And they said, you took how much? 40 shekels along with the food and drink? And Nehemiah says, I didn't do any of this. In fact, he tells us, first of all, what he did not do. And that is for 12 years, he and his relatives didn't eat the food. That would have been theirs, should have been theirs, rightfully theirs. But he said, we didn't do it. 12 years. I don't know about you, but after the first five, I say, okay, now it's time, right? You know, my uncle George is such a great man. I think he needs to give him a little bit. No, 12 years, nothing. 12 years, he did not oppress them. 12 years, he never collected the 40 shekels. That's a lot of money. You start doing the math. He, he forfeited a ton. I mean, he had a cupbearer's job before. This is like being in the NBA. He said, nope, not doing it. And what did he do? Well, look what he says after he lists the things that they did. He says in verse 16, I gave myself, watch this, to the work on the wall. First thing he says, and I, I didn't sit in the ivory palace, the governor's mansion, eating bonbons and baklava right? No, he said, I got my hands dirty. I worked on the walls. Gene Getz in his book, When Your Goals Seem Out of Reach, writes this, and it's great. He said, he, Nehemiah, was in Jerusalem to help the people, not to exploit them. That's why he cried days on end, because of recognizing the state of the city. He was there to exemplify the law of God, not to violate it. He was there to rebuild the, ball, the wall, not to build a personal empire. He's right. That's Nehemiah. That, that, what leadership? He worked on the wall. Notice what else he says there in verse 16. He said, without even purchasing a field. Now, what does that mean in context of earlier chapter five? Remember the rich nobles? they took the opportunity when these people were destitute to say, well, we'll buy your property, but it'll be pennies on the dollar, right? That tract of land, which has a great view of the Temple Mount, you know, it was worth 100,000. We'll give you 5,000 for it. And, and so they took advantage of that. Nehemiah said, I didn't even buy land because I knew that you were struggling and I wasn't gonna take advantage of you, which is huge, when you think about this, you know, the interest rates at the time of Nehemiah, they estimate were 40 to 50% on interest rates. Wow, 
I know, we might get there, but uh, yeah, I don't know, all right? Nehemiah was concerned because think about this as well land according to the Old Testament was part of the inheritance it was to maintain the identity of God's people in the land Nehemiah didn't dare touch the land he knew the restrictions established by the Mosaic law he wanted the future of the city not for his own gain he wasn't looking for the best parcel oh he could have taken it he had tons of money, which we're going to see shortly on. But he, he worked on the wall. He never purchased a field. And then notice what the text says in verse 17. You want to talk about entertainment, right? This is, this is a hostess with the mostess. He said, there was 150 prominent Jews who dined with me in addition to those who came to us from the Gentiles. That's a huge spread. Daily. In fact, I was doing a little math here. According to uh, entertaining 150 people, according to recent U.S. stats, now this was from actually 2020. I'm sure it's changed now. They said it's $12.16 per day to feed one adult. It's now $24, but yes. Um, six, uh, $12, you multiply that times a minimum of 150. We're told Gentiles are present. Then you have family members. So you probably are more like 200 and some, but that's, we'll just keep it modest at 150. You multiply that, it's 1,800 and some dollars per day. That's $665,000 a year. That's a lot of baklava, right? <laughs> and, you, and, and, and immediately scholars go for this because they'll say, ah, uh, 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 uh. Okay, here's one case in the Bible that we've got a historical problem. Really, someone would have such large dining experiences. Historically, we can show time and time again, especially during the Persian period, because the local regions as well as the, the, the governors would often, there's historical evidence of this, would provide small-scale banquets. Why? They were trying to emulate the Persian king. Listen to this record. This is a historical record from the time of Artaxerxes. It says the daily banquets of Artaxerxes, listen to this, 1,000 animals are served each day. They're cut into pieces for the king's dining. Their horses, camels, mm, not sure about those first two, oxen, donkeys, deer, and especially sheep. There you are. That's a big kebab, right? They also consume numerous birds, Arabian ostriches, geese, and chickens. This is in the historical records. 1,000 animals. And so when Nehemiah comes along, the text tells us it's, well, it's, you know, he's had 150 guests. Yes, that was common in the Persian Empire. One other question is, well, that's fine, but Nehemiah didn't tax the people. He didn't obtain food. So how did he pay for 150 plus people on a daily basis, right? That's the next question you should ask. Well, that's easy as well, because we know that as a governor, he would have had huge tracts of land already assigned to him. Tracts of land that would have produced cattle, sheep, flocks of geese, and poultry. In fact, the word, the Persian word for house in the text refers to an estate that would have been allocated to him. Furthermore, he would have gotten a lot of gifts. And usually in an agricultural society, it was bobos or it was ox. It was various animals, livestock that was given to the governor. So is this possible? Yes. 
why? Why would Nehemiah do this? It seems a little lavish when over here you've got all of these folks that are struggling eating. Well, this is interesting. The recent work done just last year on Nehemiah and his 150 guests. Scholar writes that since the 150 men who sat at Nehemiah's table could not eat all this food, you know, how, how is this all done? And because, you know, you look at the list, this is huge on a daily basis. This is more than 150 could eat. I mean, even junior hires couldn't pack that much away, right? Listen to this. It says, portions were not taken home by the guests. They were to feed the soldiers, the staff. It was, it was seen as a redistribution of the wealth. It was to take this luxurious food at this level and then let it trickle down to various groups within society. The local food bank, etc. Much of this would have been taken. What Nehemiah was doing is not only entertaining and, 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 and loving on his leaders, but he's also providing for the people. It's coming down through, the, through these dinners. And so why this scholar writes, do they have the daily banquets? One, it's to ensure loyalty and a means of control. <laughs> you got all 150 at the dinner table. You can hear every conversation, right? Let's make sure we're all on the same page idea. It established a hierarchy, make sure they understand who's in charge. And third, again, it helps with the redistribution of wealth. So we look at this and we say, what, what's going on here? Let me give you some summaries. Nehemiah, unlike the governors, unlike the nobles, he wasn't taking resources from the people. He sacrificed his own, his own resources. Secondly, instead of taking advantage of the situation, Nehemiah was careful. He was transparent and full of integrity. Third, instead of lording his authority over the people, Nehemiah identified with the people and even joined in building the walls, right? He didn't, he picked up the trowel. He had cement drying on his fingers. He knew what that meant. And finally, instead of being served, Nehemiah served others. <laughs> Was he entitled to the foods? Yes. Was he entitled to the, the shekels, the tax? Yes. Was he exempted from the work? Yes. And think about it. If it weren't for Nehemiah, I mean, put yourselves in, in Nehemiah's shoes. I mean, Nehemiah could have said, hey, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have this wall. I'm the one who went to the king and risked his neck. I'm the one who asked for the resources. I'm the one who assessed the situation and got everyone involved. I've stuck out my neck. The least I should do is sit back and you serve me. No, that's not where he is. I remember serving as the admissions rep of Dallas Seminary and Chuck Swindoll had been hired as president. And he came, you know, and this, this great speaker, author, dear man of God. And I remember we were taking some students across the campus and Swindoll was moving from his car to his office. He had his briefcase and, you know, I don't want to and disturb uh, President Swindoll. He was a busy man. And he dropped, I said, hello, Dr. Swindoll. These are some visitors. He said, oh, that's great. He put his briefcase down and he talked to them for at least 20 minutes. I said, there, there is a leader. He, he was far more concerned about others than himself. He asked them, and then he followed up with them. I said, that, that's this kind of Nehemiah leader. 
And the leadership is so important. People are looking for individuals they can trust who are willing to join in the work and are willing to serve rather than being served. We won't go into politics, but let's do the workplace. In 2021, global leadership forecast stated that leading companies, only 11% reported that they have a strong leadership bench. 11%. Sadly, I fear the vacuum of leadership we're seeing in the workplace, we are also seeing at the church of Big C at large. We're in desperate need of godly leaders, men and women. Wayne Mack writes, according to the Bible, a leader is first and foremost a servant. His concern is not for himself. His concern is not to give orders, to boss other people around, to have his own way. His concern is to meet the needs of others. And fathers, if I can step on your toes just for a few minutes, (laughs) this is the type of leadership we need in the home. We need it modeled to our children We need it implemented in our marriages. This uh, Nehemiah is used for leadership training in parachurch ministries and church ministries, and that's great. There's much that can be brought into the home as, as fathers. But what is it that motivated Nehemiah? I mean, he wasn't reading Artaxerxes 101 ways to lead a Persian empire. He wasn't the fantastic charisma, at least, I don't know, maybe he was, but there's no MBA degree from the Sousa School of Business. What is it? The secret is in verse 15. Look at this. You don't get anything else from this morning. Get verse 15. I did not behave in this way, he says, in the latter part of that verse, due to, and here it is, my fear of God. (laughs) Wow. Wow. The implications are huge. One, it tells us that the leaders did not fear God, which is damning in and of itself. And we can go off on that one. We won't. We're going to focus on this. The fear of God is repeated numerous times in the Old Testament. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, you'll find it 14 times. Proverbs tells us the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. The fear of God hates evil and seeks righteousness. The fear of God is what brings riches, wealth, and honor, and life. But what is the fear of God? Is it fear, you know, this this idea of trembling, scared, that that God of the universe is going to take out a, a stick and whack us over the head over it? What is this fear of God? What is so central to Old Testament theology? It doesn't indicate a fright or terror. Rather, fear is a reverential trust that results in our desire to glorify God. Let me repeat that because this is huge. It is a reverential trust that results in our desire to glorify the Lord. You might define it awe with obedience. Awe with obedience. That's the fear of God. Let me give you what I'm talking about. Uh, years ago, I had the chance to have dinner with Charles Ryrie, not throwing, a, you know, he was down in Dallas. He was associated with the seminary. And my, the, the night that we were meeting, my palms were sweaty. I thought, this is the great Dr. Charles Ryrie, you know. It, there was this respect and awe that was driving, that, that was a form of fear, not 
you know, was not afraid I was going to spill orange juice on him or get my hands sticky from baklava. No, that's not at all. It, it was just, this is a great warrior in the faith, great theologian. This is a, just a glimpse of what it is before an almighty God, isn't it? The awe that comes to knowing who he is and the opportunity we have to come just worship him. Kenneth Boa writes, to fear God is to nurture an attitude of awe and humility before him and to walk in radical dependence upon God in each area of life. The fear of the Lord is similar to the mindset of a subject before a powerful king. It is to be under divine authority as one who will surely give an account. Fearing the Lord relates in trust, humility, teachability, servanthood, responsiveness, gratitude, and reliance on God. It's the opposite of arrogance. Remember earlier in the text, Nehemiah said the problem with you nobles is that you don't fear God. He says, this is what drives me. A healthy fear of God isn't just with our relationship with the Lord. It, it comes forth in our relationship with people. It's no surprise in the book of Leviticus, the holiness code, that which you, you see time and time again in the ethics, it's linked directly with, you can look it up, five times the formula is used, the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord that drives our interactions with one another. The, before I lash out in criticism, I need to think about the Lord. <laughs> before I think of, of cheating on my spouse, you better think of the fear of the Lord. When you be disobedient to your parents, you better think about the fear of the Lord. And all with obedience. I wrote, you'll be free of the burden of trying to please people if you are a God pleaser. Fathers, mothers, spouses, grandparents, children who fear God, we have an audience of only one. It's God, don't we? Only God. Expectations, desires, even lifelong dreams, they have to be eclipsed by the fear of God. Uh, think about this. This is the white space. I'm gonna just preach this. this is it, Thus saith the Lord. But can you imagine what Nehemiah's mother, if she was living at the time, when Nehemiah says, hey, I'm gonna go back to Jerusalem, what she was thinking, or what she may have said. Are you crazy? You got the best job in the land. You're a cupbearer to the king. I mean, uh, uh, you know, and, and 12 years you're gonna go? I'll be dead by then, all right? You can just hear it. Uh, you, you work with nice people. You got an incredible retirement plan. What are you thinking? <laughs> Nehemiah says, I fear God. In fact, I, I, it's just interesting as you look at the text and, and Nehemiah is going to come back to this. The fear of the Lord is not only that which, which eclipses all things, but it's a great place for one's personal motives to be placed in check. Fearing God eradicates, obliterates the rationale, well, it feels right to me. It makes me happy. Well, this is what I believe. I mean, all of those lines, which we've heard quite a bit this past month, are meaningless before an almighty God. Just, you can just hear the Lord. I don't really care. 
I created you, I can eliminate you, I am the God of the universe. And Nehemiah, as he looks at this landscape, and, and boy, he could have lined his pockets. Think about how much money he could have had. 40 shekels time every person. I mean, you do the math, right? This is great. No, 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 no. This is, I, look at the text. What does he say? I do this to, because of my fear of God. Psalm 120, Psalm 112. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. With all that in place, he can say in verse 19, which is, uh, this is shocking to me, or difficult. He says, please remember me for good, oh my God, for all that I have done for your people. This won't be the first time Nehemiah prays this. In, the, in this book, we'll see it several times. In fact, it's how the book ends. And remember, Nehemiah in the Hebrew canon was the last book of the Old Testament. In other words, the entire Hebrew canon closes with, remember me, O Lord. <laughs> this, this call to, Lord, recall these things. And you see this time and time again in the Old Testament, whether it's Noah, Abraham, Rachel, Samson, Hannah, Solomon, David, 132 of Psalm, of, it says, O Lord, remember in your favor and all the hardships that I have delivered. This call to remember is important. It's not that you can remember that two plus two is four. No, 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 no. What we see throughout scripture when there's a call to remember, it means to bring to mind something or someone from the past and then to respond with action. Remembering always leads, listen to this in scripture, to an action or response. Think about the communion table. It's to remember it's not just to say, oh yeah, thank you, Lord, for what you did. No, no, no. It, it's to drive us into action to serve the Lord, to reflect on the sacrifice that was made. And, and so when Nehemiah says, Lord, remember, he's calling for the Lord to act. This isn't the first. Look at chapter one, verse eight. This whole journey to Susa began with a recognition, a recognition to call, recall. He says in verse one, or chapter one, verse eight, please recall the word, your commandment, your servant Moses, if you're unfaithful, I will, what's he saying? Lord, remember the covenant you gave? Act. We're at a point now, I need you to act, oh Lord. Nehemiah is so intent that God remembers for God's glory, right? <laughs> the, the idea of asking the Lord to recall indicates that God is personal, God cares, and God is faithful to do it. This goes back to what I said to the beginning of the sermon. What do you want to be remembered by when you pray to the Lord? If Nehemiah wasn't living for the Lord, I can guarantee you he wouldn't be asking the Lord remember. <laughs> because, yeah, you might have some good works over here, but if you're not living for the Lord, there's a whole bunch of crud over here. And so this morning, do you want the Lord to remember your actions? If you cannot pray that prayer, then what needs to change so that you can pray Nehemiah's prayer? What is it that needs to change? So you can say, Lord, remember what I have done. 
Again, why can Nehemiah say, remember what I've done? Well, there's several things which we can tease out there in your notes there at the end of characteristics of godly character. Godly character, first, this is a laundry list there at the end of your notes, but godly character embraces good stewardship. We need individuals who are strategic in their positions of influence and resources who fear God and do not waver from the task set before them. Proverbs 12, the one who works his field will have plenty of food, but whoever chases daydreams lacks sense. I love that proverb. Isn't that great? Nehemiah has been calculated from the very beginning in his prayer. We looked at this in his interaction with Artaxerxes and what he's looking for as he moves along. And so he, he, he lays out for us what we need to be doing in godly character and what we want God to remember us by. And one is good stewardship. Secondly, it's caring for people. Nehemiah never ran roughshod over anyone, which is, again, amazing. I love the line in verse 18. Look at verse 18, the latter part of that verse. It says, while this I did not require the food allocated to the governor, for the work was demanding on the people. There's the key. He understood. He knew that they had a lot to do, and it was burdensome to them. I want to address men again, you this morning. I stepped on your toes. Now I'm really going to step on your toes. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 18.5 million children in this country grow out without a father. In fact, this gives us U.S. the title of the world's leader in fatherlessness. That is not an honor we want. It's devastating, and men, we need to be leaders in serving as role models for our children and the children within our community, whether you're a father or not. You say, well, is that really affecting our country? Yes, 80%, listen to these stats, of single-parent homes are led by single mothers. 85% of children and teens with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. Over 70% of all adolescent patients in drug and alcohol treatments originate from homes without fathers. No wonder we're in a mess. Men, we need you to stand up. We need men who will lead, whether you have children or not. I'm so grateful for the men who serve in our children's area. We need more men. We need these young boys, two, three, four-year-olds, to see a, a, a male role model pointing them to Christ. Teens, thanks to you men who help out. There was a ton of them last night at the youth event, and I know Michael will echo this. We need more men. Elizabeth Moberly, who wrote years ago, a secular psychologist, she said the problem, the the, the reason we're having such an issue with homosexuality is because we don't have men pouring into men and women pouring into women. That was a secular psychologist. We need men working with children, working with our youth. Maybe it's grabbing a cup of coffee with one of the young teen men and saying, hey, let's get together this week. Volunteering in a, a, a school program or mentoring program in our communities. We, we, need, we need men to step up to the plate. Nehemiah was not afraid 
to do that. We need to be caring for people. Well, I'm starting to, that's too convicting. We'll move on to letter C of the notes. Godly character is marked by generosity. Greed is a leading factor in the demise of so many individuals, isn't it? And it it comes in many sizes and shapes. (laughs) It's not confined to a particular amount in one's bank account, is it? Greed. And and Nehemiah recognized the danger of, of that in his role as governor. Anyone, in fact, who neglected the poor... He understood the Mosaic law would not only be considered callous and stingy, they would be acting sinfully and would not receive God's blessing in the future. Later in the Old Testament, Proverbs informs us that the one who oppresses the poor to gain his own increase and the one who gives to the rich both end up only in poverty. (laughs) But greed isn't confined to bank accounts and toys. It can also come in time, communication, and in relationship. Philip Hughes in his commentary on 2 Corinthians writes, true generosity is not the prerogative of those who enjoy an adequacy of means. Listen to what he writes. The most genuine liberality is frequently displayed by those who have least to give. Christian giving is estimated in terms not of quantity, but of sacrifice. Wow. So godly character, what do we want to be remembered for? Nehemiah shows us. That is good stewardship. That is caring for people. That's generosity. It's also humility. This is a a great one, isn't it? By the time you think you have it, you don't, right? Uh, Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 indicates the Lord honors those who are humble and he will exalt. It's one thing God hates, he lists, is pride. Pride solicits poverty, shame, and death throughout Scripture. Another area of godly character is integrity and transparency. I love Nehemiah. Uh, he, he has nothing to hide. Twelve years, I didn't take a dime. No shekels, no baklava, nothing from no one. I'm above board. This is it. Right? Even the world standards out there do not tolerate unethical, immoral, or dishonest activity. And scripture is clear, the integrity of the upright will guide them, Proverbs 11, but the falseness of the treacherous will destroy them. There's a quote at the bottom of your notes there by Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. It writes, it doesn't matter really how great the pressure is It only matters where the pressure lies. See that it never comes between you and the Lord. Then the greatest pressure, the more it presses you to his breast. (laughs) Nehemiah had a lot of pressure and it, it came from outside, it came from inside. He had it all together. I mean, everything you would want. He had a great powerful position, everything at his disposal. At the end of the day, only thing that mattered for Nehemiah is that he feared God. And so this morning, I ask you, what do you want the Lord to remember you for? Ending a sentence in a preposition, but there it is, right? How do you want the Lord, as he looks at Joe, Sally, whoever, and he says, what do you want to be remembered for? That you feared God? 
or that sometimes you feared God, you compartmentalized. And for you men in the room, I know, it's convicting, but how are you modeling that in the home with your spouse, in the workplace? If you're not married, you don't have children, how are you doing that when interacting with other young men or other men your age? Fearing God is what drives it. We see it in Leviticus. We see it throughout Scripture. And it's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Father, on this Father's Day, thank you. Thank you for loving us so. Thank you for sending your Son when we did not love you. You sent your Son to come take our crud, our sin. He took it and was nailed to a cross because his blood needed to be shed and he paid the price for our sin and we rejoice that three days later he rose from the grave and father if there's someone here this morning that knows nothing about this they haven't been there neither they've not placed their fear in you I pray that today they would for some in the room Oh, they've made that profession to follow after you. And that's gone to the wayside. Oh, they look great on the front. <laughs> but if we were to do an inventory, sit down with their spouse, look at their checkbook, look at the, what they've been looking at on the computer late at night, would we see someone who truly fears you? Father, there's some in this room that need to bend their knee and confess. And for others in this room, it's a reminder. Nehemiah is showing us, hey, we do want to be remembered. We want to be remembered as people who passionately sought after you, that we glorified you. Because it's not about us, it's about you. For, for us to live, as Paul said, is, is for Christ. To die is gain. And so, Father... May others see Christ in us as we live for you. In Jesus' name.